Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing recently published articles. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Intravenous Levothyroxine for Unstable Brain-Dead Heart Donors Background Hemodynamic instability and myocardial dysfunction are major factors preventing the transplantation of hearts from organ donors after brain death. Intravenous levothyroxine is widely used in donor care, on the basis of observational data suggesting that more organs may be transplanted from donors who receive hormonal supplementation. Methods In this trial involving 15 organ procurement organizations in the United States, we randomly assigned hemodynamically unstable potential heart donors within 24 hours after declaration of death according to neurologic criteria to open-label infusion of intravenous levothyroxine, 30 g per hour for a minimum of 12 hours, or saline placebo. The primary outcome was transplantation of the donor heart, graft survival at 30 days after transplantation was a pre-specified recipient safety outcome. Secondary outcomes included weaning from vasopressor therapy, donor ejection fraction, and number of organs transplanted per donor. Results Of the 852 brain-dead donors who underwent randomization, 838 were included in the primary analysis, 419 in the levothyroxine group and 419 in the saline group. Hearts were transplanted from 230 donors, 54.9%, in the levothyroxine group and 223, 53.2%, in the saline group. Adjusted risk ratio, 1.01, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.97 to 1.07, P equals 0.57. Graft survival at 30 days occurred in 224 hearts, 97.4%, transplanted from donors assigned to receive levothyroxine in 213 hearts, 95.5%, transplanted from donors assigned to receive saline, difference, 1.9 percentage points. 95% C, minus 2.3 to 6.0, P less than 0.001 for non-inferiority at a margin of 6 percentage points. There were no substantial between-group differences in weaning from vasopressor therapy, ejection fraction on echocardiography, or organs transplanted per donor, but more cases of severe hypertension and tachycardia occurred in the levothyroxine group than in the saline group. Conclusions in hemodynamically unstable brain-dead potential heart donors, intravenous levothyroxine infusion did not result in significantly more hearts being transplanted than saline infusion. <music> Inhaled amikacin to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia. Background 
Whether preventive inhaled antibiotics may reduce the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia is unclear. Methods In this investigator-initiated, multi-center, double-blind, randomized, controlled, superiority trial, we assigned critically ill adults who had been undergoing invasive mechanical ventilation for at least 72 hours to receive inhaled amikacin at a dose of 20 mg per kilogram of ideal body weight once daily or to receive placebo for three days. The primary outcome was a first episode of ventilator-associated pneumonia during 28 days of follow-up. Safety was assessed. Results A total of 850 patients underwent randomization, and 847 were included in the analyses, 417 assigned to the amikacin group and 430 to the placebo group. All three daily nebulizations were received by 337 patients, 81%, in the amikacin group and 355 patients, 83%, in the placebo group. At 28 days, ventilator-associated pneumonia had developed in 62 patients, 15%, in the amikacin group and in 95 patients, 22%, in the placebo group, difference in restricted mean survival time to ventilator-associated pneumonia, 1.5 days, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.6 to 2.5, P equals 0.004. An infection-related ventilator-associated complication occurred in 74 patients, 18%, in the amikacin group and in 111 patients, 26%, in the placebo group, Hazard ratio, 0.66, 95% C, 0.50 to 0.89. Trial-related serious adverse effects were seen in 7 patients, 1.7%, in the amikacin group and in 4 patients, 0.9%, in the placebo group. Conclusions Among patients who had undergone mechanical ventilation for at least 3 days, a subsequent three-day course of inhaled amikacin reduced the burden of ventilator-associated pneumonia during 28 days of follow-up. Tarlitamab for patients with previously treated small cell lung cancer Background Tarlitamab a bispecific T-cell engager immunotherapy targeting delta-like ligand 3 and CD3, showed promising anti-tumor activity in a phase 1 trial in patients with previously treated small cell lung cancer. Methods Methods In this phase 2 trial, we evaluated the anti-tumor activity and safety of tarlitamab, administered intravenously every two weeks at a dose of 10 mg or 100 mg, in patients with previously treated small cell lung cancer. The primary endpoint was objective response, complete or partial response, as assessed by blinded independent central review according to the response evaluation criteria in solid tumors, version 1.1. Results. Overall, 220 patients received tarlitamab, patients had previously received a median of two lines of treatment. Among patients evaluated for anti-tumor activity and survival, the median follow-up was 10.6 months in the 10 mg group and 10.3 months in the 100 mg group. An objective response occurred in 40%, 97.5% confidence interval, C, 29-52, of the patients in the 10 mg group and in 32%, 97.5% C, 21-44, of those in the 100 mg group. Among patients with an objective response, the duration of response was at least 6 months in 59%, 40 of 68 patients. 
Objective responses at the time of data cutoff were ongoing in 22 of 40 patients, 55%, in the 10 mg group and in 16 of 28 patients, 57%, in the 100 mg group. The median progression-free survival was 4.9 months, 95% C, 2.9 to 6.7, in the 10 mg group and 3.9 months, 95% C, 2.6 to 4.4, in the 100 mg group. The estimates of overall survival at 9 months were 68% and 66% of patients, respectively. The most common adverse events were cytokine release syndrome, in 51% of the patients in the 10 mg group and in 61% of those in the 100 mg group, decreased appetite, in 29% and 44%, respectively, and pyrexia, in 35% and 33%. Cytokine release syndrome occurred primarily during treatment cycle 1 and events in most of the patients were grade 1 or 2 in severity. Grade 3 cytokine release syndrome occurred less frequently in the 10 mg group in 1% of the patients than in the 100 mg group in 6%. A low percentage of patients, 3%, discontinued tarlidomab because of treatment-related adverse events. Conclusions Tarlidomab administered as a 10 mg dose every two weeks, showed anti-tumor activity with durable objective responses and promising survival outcomes in patients with previously treated small cell lung cancer. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Effective Non-Invasive Airway Management of Comatose Patients with Acute Poisoning A Randomized Clinical Trial Importance tracheal intubation is recommended for coma patients and those with severe brain injury, but its use in patients with decreased levels of consciousness from acute poisoning is uncertain. Objective to determine the effect of intubation withholding versus routine practice on clinical outcomes of comatose patients with acute poisoning and a Glasgow Coma Scale score less than 9. Design, setting, and participants This was a multi-center, randomized trial conducted in 20 emergency departments and one intensive care unit, ICU, that included comatose patients with suspected acute poisoning and a Glasgow Coma Scale score less than 9 in France between May 16, 2021, and April 12, 2023, and followed up until May 12, 2023. Intervention patients were randomized to undergo conservative airway strategy of intubation withholding versus routine practice. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was a hierarchical composite endpoint of in-hospital death, length of ICU stay, and length of hospital stay. Key secondary outcomes included adverse events resulting from intubation as well as pneumonia within 48 hours. Results among the 225 included patients, mean age, 33 years, 38% female, 116, 16%, were in the intervention group and 109, 58%, in the control group. No patients died during the in-hospital stay. There was a significant clinical benefit for the primary endpoint in the intervention group, with a win ratio of 1.85, 95% C, 1.33 to 2.58. In the intervention group, there was a lower proportion with any adverse event, 6% versus 14.7%, absolute risk difference, 8.6%, 95% C, minus 16.6% to minus 0.7%, compared with the control group, and pneumonia occurred in 8, 6.9%, and 16, 14.7%, patients, respectively, absolute risk difference, 
minus 7.8%, 95% C, minus 15.9% to 0.3%. Conclusions and relevance among comatose patients with suspected acute poisoning, a conservative strategy of withholding intubation was associated with a greater clinical benefit for the composite endpoint of in-hospital death, length of ICU stay, and length of hospital stay. Effective personalized risk reduction strategies on cognition and dementia risk profile among older adults. The SMART randomized clinical trial. Importance tracheal intubation is recommended for coma patients and those with severe brain injury, but its use in patients with decreased levels of consciousness from acute poisoning is uncertain. Objective to determine the effect of intubation withholding versus routine practice on clinical outcomes of comatose patients with acute poisoning and a Glasgow Coma Scale score less than 9. Design, setting, and participants This was a multi-center, randomized trial conducted in 20 emergency departments and one intensive care unit, ICU, that included comatose patients with suspected acute poisoning and a Glasgow Coma Scale score less than 9 in France between May 16, 2021, and April 12, 2023 and followed up until May 12, 2023. Intervention patients were randomized to undergo conservative airway strategy of intubation withholding versus routine practice. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was a hierarchical composite endpoint of in-hospital death, length of ICU stay, and length of hospital stay. Key secondary outcomes included adverse events resulting from intubation as well as pneumonia within 48 hours. Results among the 225 included patients, mean age, 33 years, 38% female, 116, 16%, were in the intervention group and 109, 58%, in the control group. No patients died during the in-hospital stay. There was a significant clinical benefit for the primary endpoint in the intervention group, with a win ratio of 1.85, 95% C, 1.33 to 2.58. In the intervention group, there was a lower proportion with any adverse event, 6% versus 14.7%, absolute risk difference, 8.6%, 95% C, minus 16.6% to minus 0.7%, compared with the control group, and pneumonia occurred in 8, 6.9%, and 16, 14.7%, patients, respectively, absolute risk difference, minus 7.8%, 95% C, minus 15.9% to 0.3%. Conclusions and relevance among comatose patients with suspected acute poisoning, a conservative strategy of withholding intubation was associated with a greater clinical benefit for the composite endpoint of in-hospital death, length of ICU stay, and length of hospital stay. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Inappropriate prescribing to older patients by nurse practitioners and primary care physicians. Background. Many U.S. states have legislated to allow nurse practitioners, NPs, to independently prescribe drugs. Critics contend that these moves will adversely affect quality of care. Objective. To compare rates of inappropriate prescribing among NPs and primary care physicians. Design. Rates of inappropriate prescribing were calculated and compared for 23,669 NPs and 5060 primary care physicians who wrote prescriptions for 100 or more patients per year, 
with adjustment for practice experience, patient volume and risk, clinical setting, year, and state. Setting 29 states that had granted NPs prescriptive authority by 2019. Patients Medicare Part D beneficiaries aged 65 years or older in 2013 to 2019. Measurements Inappropriate prescriptions, defined as drugs that typically should not be prescribed for adults aged 65 years or older, according to the American Geriatric Society's Beers Criteria. Results Mean rates of inappropriate prescribing by NPs and primary care physicians were virtually identical, adjusted odds ratio, 0.99, 95% C, 0.97 to 1.01, crude rates, 1.63 versus 1.69 per 100 prescriptions, adjusted rates, 1.66 versus 1.68. However, NPs were overrepresented among clinicians with the highest and lowest rates of inappropriate prescribing. For both types of practitioners, discrepancies in inappropriate prescribing rates across states tended to be larger than discrepancies between these practitioners within states. Limitation The Beers criteria addresses the appropriateness of a selected subset of drugs and may not be valid in some clinical settings. Conclusion Nurse practitioners were no more likely than physicians to prescribe inappropriately to older patients. Broad efforts to improve the performance of all clinicians who prescribe may be more effective than limiting independent prescriptive authority to physicians. Next article from Nature Medicine Financial Incentives for COVID-19 Vaccines in a Rural Low-Resource Setting, a Cluster Randomized Trial We implemented a clustered randomized controlled trial with 6,963 residents in six rural Ghana districts to estimate the causal impact of financial incentives on coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, vaccination uptake. Villages randomly received one of four video treatment arms, a placebo, a standard health message, a high-cash incentive, 60 Ghana CDs, and a low-cash incentive, 20 Ghana CDs. For the first co-primary outcome, COVID-19 vaccination intentions, non-vaccinated participants assigned to the cash incentive treatments had an average rate of 81%, 1,733 of 2,168, compared to 71%, 1,895 of 2,669, for those in the placebo treatment arm. For the other co-primary outcome of self-reported vaccinations two months after the initial intervention, The average rate for participants in the cash treatment was 3.5% higher than for participants in the placebo treatment, 95% confidence interval, c, 0.001, 6.9, p equals 0.045, 40%, 602 of 1,486, versus 36.3%, 672 of 1,850. We also verified vaccination status of participants, In the cash treatment arm, 36.6%, 355 of 1,058, of verified participants had at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine compared to 30.3%, 439 of 1,544, for those in the placebo, a difference of 6.3%, 95% C, 2.4, 10.2, P equals 0.001. For the intention and the vaccination outcomes, the low cash incentive, 20 Ghana CDs, had a larger positive effect on COVID-19 vaccine uptake than the high cash incentive, 
60 Ghana CDs. Next article from British Medical Journal. Social media use and health risk behaviors in young people, systematic review and meta-analysis. Objectives to examine the association between social media use and health risk behaviors in adolescents, defined as those 10 to 19 years. Design systematic review and meta-analysis. Data sources in base, Medline, APA Psych Info, Soak Index, Sinal, SSRN, Sokar Axic, SIR 14, Medurxiv, and Google Scholar, January 1, 1997 to June 6, 2022. Results of 17077 studies screened, 126 were included, 73 included in meta-analyses. The final sample included 1431-534 adolescents, mean age 15.0 years. Synthesis without meta-analysis indicated harmful associations between social media and all health risk behaviors in most included studies, except inadequate physical activity where beneficial associations were reported in 63.6% of studies. Frequent, be infrequent, social media use was associated with increased alcohol consumption, odds ratio 1.48, 95% confidence interval 1.35 to 1.62, and equals 383.068, drug use, 1.28, 1.05 to 1.56, and equals 117646, tobacco use, 1.85, 1.49 to 2.30, and equals 424326, sexual risk behaviors, 1.77, 1.48 to 2.12, and equals 47280, antisocial behavior, 1.73, 1.44 to 2.06, and equals 54993, multiple risk behaviors, 1.75, 1.30 to 2.35, and equals 43,571, and gambling, 2.84, 2.04 to 3.97, and equals 26,537. Exposure to content showcasing health risk behaviors on social media, be no exposure, was associated with increased odds of use of electronic nicotine delivery systems, 1.73, 1.34 to 2.23 and equals 721,322, unhealthy dietary behaviors, 2.48, 2.08 to 2.97, and equals 9892, and alcohol consumption, 2.43, 1.25 to 4.71, and equals 14,731. For alcohol consumption, stronger associations were identified for exposure to user-generated content, 3.21, 2.37 to 4.33, versus marketer-generated content, 2.12, For time spent on social media, use for at least 2 hours per day, v less than 2 hours, increased odds of alcohol consumption, 2.12, to 2.95, and equals 12,390. Grade certainty was moderate for unhealthy dietary behavior, low for alcohol use, and very low for other investigated outcomes. Conclusion Social media use is associated with adverse health risk behaviors in young people, but further high-quality research is needed to establish causality, understand effects on health inequalities, and determine which aspects of social media are most harmful.
Next article from Lancet. Long-term outcomes with biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents versus durable polymer everolimus eluding stents in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, 5-year follow-up of the Biostimi randomized superiority trial. Background. Biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents improve early stent-related clinical outcomes compared to durable polymer everolimus eluding stents in patients with ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, STEMI undergoing primary percutaneous coronary intervention. The long-term advantages of biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents after complete degradation of its polymer coating in patients with STEMI remains however uncertain. Methods Biostemi Extended Survival, Biostemi S, was an investigator-initiated, follow-up extension study of the Biostemi Perspective, multi-center, single-blind, randomized superiority trial that compared biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents with durable polymer everolimus eluding stents in patients with STEMI undergoing primary percutaneous coronary intervention at 10 hospitals in Switzerland. All individuals who had provided written informed consent for participation in the Biostemi trial were eligible for this follow-up study. The primary endpoint was target lesion failure, defined as a composite of cardiac death, target vessel myocardial reinfarction, or clinically indicated target lesion revascularization, at 5 years. Superiority of biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents over durable polymer everolimus eluding stents was declared at the Bayesian posterior probability for a rate ratio, RR, of less than 1 was greater than 0 middle.975. Analyses were performed according to the intention-to-treat principle. The study was registered with clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 054843100. Findings. Between April 26, 2016, and March 9, 2018, 1,300 patients with STEMI, 1,622 lesions, were randomly allocated in a 1 to 1 ratio to treatment with biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents, 649 patients, 816 lesions, or durable polymer everolimus eluding stents, 651 patients, 806 lesions. At 5 years, the primary composite endpoint of target lesion failure occurred in 58% patients treated with biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents and in 72-11% patients treated with durable polymer everolimus eluding stents, difference of minus 3%, RR0 middle.70, 95% Bayesian credible interval 0 middle.51 to 0 middle.95, Bayesian posterior probability for superiority 0 middle.988. Interpretation. In patients undergoing primary percutaneous coronary intervention for STEMI, biodegradable polymer cyrolimus eluding stents were superior to durable polymer everolimus eluding stents with respect to target lesion failure at five years of follow-up. The difference was driven by a numerically lower risk for ischemia-driven target lesion revascularization. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Five-year overall survival analysis of the Jipang study, Pemetrexed or Venorobine plus Cisplatin for resected stage 2 FIA non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. The Jipang study is an open-label phase 3 trial evaluating the efficacy of Pemetrexed plus Cisplatin, PEMP, versus Venorobine plus Cisplatin, NP, as adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with stage 2 FIA non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. NSCLC.
Here, we report the long follow-up overall survival, OS, data. Eligible patients were randomly assigned to receive either PEMP or NP. The primary endpoint was recurrence-free survival, RFS, and the secondary endpoint included OS. This analysis was performed using data collected five years after the last patient enrollment. Among 804 patients enrolled, 783 patients were eligible, 384 for NP and 389 for PEMP. The updated median RFS was 37.5 months in the NP arm and 43.4 months in the PEMP arm with a hazard ratio of 0.95, 95% C, 0.79 to 1.14. At a median follow-up of 77.3 months, the OS rates at 3 and 5 years were 84.1% and 75.6% versus 87.0% and 75.0% with a hazard ratio of 1.04, 95% C, 0.81 to 1.34. This long-term follow-up analysis showed that PEMP had similar efficacy to NP in both RFS and OS for this population, with one of the longest OS data compared with the historical data. Next article from Hepatology. Duration of Type 2 Diabetes and Liver-Related Events in Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, a Landmark Analysis. Background and Aims. We aim to determine the impact of the duration of type 2 diabetes, T2D, on the risk of liver-related events and all-cause mortality in patients with NAFLD. Approach and Results. We conducted a territory-wide cohort study of adult patients with NAFLD diagnosed between January 1, 2000, and July 31, 2021, in Hong Kong. T2D was defined by the use of any anti-diabetic agents, laboratory tests, and or diagnosis codes. The primary endpoint was liver-related events, defined as a composite endpoint of HCC and cirrhotic complications. To conduct a more granular assessment of the duration of T2D, We employed landmark analysis in four different ages of interest, biological age of 40, 50, 60, and 70 years. By multivariable analysis with adjustment of non-liver-related deaths, compared with patients without diabetes at age 60, incidence rate of liver-related events, 0.70 per 1,000 person years, the adjusted sub-distribution HR, SHR, of liver-related events was 2.51, 95% C, 1.32 to 4.77, incidence rate, 2.26 per 1,000 person years, in patients with T2D duration less than 5 years, 3.16, 95% C, 1.59 to 6.31, incidence rate, 2.54 per 1,000 person years, in those with T2D duration of 6 to 10 years, and 6.20, 95% C, 2.62 to 14.65, incidence rate, 4.17 per 1,000 person years, in those with T2D duration more than 10 years. A similar association between the duration of T2D and all-cause mortality was also observed. Conclusions Longer duration of T2D is significantly associated with a higher risk of liver-related events and all-cause mortality in patients with NAFLD. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. The Impact of Intermittent Fasting on Patients with Suspected Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease. Background. 
Lifestyle modifications are often suggested, but the role of diet in GERD is unclear. Intermittent fasting is popular in the media and has demonstrated potential benefits with weight loss and inflammatory conditions as well as alterations in gastrointestinal hormones. Study Patients who were referred for 96-hour ambulatory wireless pH monitoring off-proton pump inhibitor to investigate GERD symptoms were screened for eligibility. Patients were instructed to maintain their baseline diet for the first two days of pH monitoring and switch to an intermittent fasting regimen, 16 consecutive hour fast and 8 hours eating window, for the second two days. Objective measures of reflux and GERD symptom severity were collected and analyzed. Results A total of 25 participants were analyzed. 925, 36%, fully adhered to the intermittent fasting regimen, with 2125, 84%, demonstrating at least partial compliance. Mean acid exposure time on fasting days was 3.5% versus 4.3% on non-fasting days. Intermittent fasting was associated with a 0.64 reduction in acid exposure time, 95% C, minus 2.32, 1.05. There was a reduction in GERT symptom scores of heartburn and regurgitation during periods of intermittent fasting, 14.3 versus 9.9, difference of minus 4.46, 95% C, minus 7.6, minus 1.32. Conclusions Initial adherence to time-restricted eating may be difficult for patients. There is weak statistical evidence to suggest that intermittent fasting mildly reduces acid exposure. Our data show that short-term intermittent fasting improves symptoms of both regurgitation and heartburn. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases. Prevalence of comorbid factors in patients with recurrent Clostridioides difficile infection in Ecospur 3, a randomized trial of an oral microbiota-based therapeutic. Background. Although comorbidities are risk factors for recurrent Clostridioides difficile infection, RT, many clinical trials exclude patients with medical conditions such as malignancy or immunosuppression. In a phase 3, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial, Ecospur 3, fecal microbiota spores, live, Faust, Sears Therapeutics, hereafter VO, formerly SARE 109, an oral microbiota therapeutic, significantly reduced the risk of RT at week 8. We evaluated the efficacy of VO compared with placebo in patients with comorbidities and other risk factors for RT. Methods Adults with RICTI were randomized to receive VO or placebo, four capsules daily for three days, following standard of care antibiotics. In this post hoc analysis, the rate of RICTI through week 8 was assessed in VO treated participants compared with placebo for subgroups including I, Charlson Comorbidity Index, CCI, score category 0, 1 to 2, 3 to 4, greater than or equal to 5, 2, baseline creatinine clearance, less than 30, 30 to 50, greater than 50 to 80, or greater than 80 milliliters slash minute. 3. Number of CDI episodes, inclusive of the qualifying episode, 3 and greater than or equal to 4. 4. Exposure to non-CDI targeted antibiotics after dosing, and, v. Acid-suppressing medication use at baseline. Results. Of 281 participants screened, 182 were randomized, 59.9% female, mean age, 65.5 years. 
Comorbidities were common with a mean overall baseline age-adjusted CCI score of 4.1, 4.1 in the VO arm and 4.2 in the placebo arm. Across all subgroups analyzed, VO-treated participants had a lower relative risk of recurrence compared with placebo. Conclusions In this post-hoc analysis, VO reduced the risk of RCT compared with placebo, regardless of baseline characteristics, concomitant medications or comorbidities. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Incidence of Cytomegalovirus Primary and Secondary Infection in Adolescent Girls, Results from a Prospective Study. Developing a Vaccine to Prevent Congenital Cytomegalovirus, CMV, Infection and Newborn Disability Requires an Understanding of Infection Incidence. In a prospective cohort study of 363 adolescent girls, NCT 01691820, CMV Sarah status, primary infection, and secondary infection were determined in blood and urine samples collected at enrollment and every four months for three years. Baseline CMV seroprevalence was 58%. Primary infection occurred in 14.8% of seronegative girls. Among seropositive girls, 5.9% had greater than or equal to four-fold increase in anti-CMV antibody, and 23.9% shed CMV DNA urine. Our findings provide insights on infection epidemiology and highlight the need for more standardized markers of secondary infection. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Hippobacter weakness and its association with new or worsened knee pain, data from the multicenter osteoarthritis study. Objective. Hippobacters, important for controlling pelvic and femoral orientation during gait, may affect knee pain. Our objective was to evaluate the relation of hip abductor strength to worsened or new onset frequent knee pain. Given previously noted associations of knee extensor strength with osteoarthritis in women, we performed sex-specific analyzes. Methods We used data from the multi-center osteoarthritis study. Hip abductor and knee extensor strength was measured. Knee pain was assessed using the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, WOMIC, questionnaire and a question about frequent knee pain at baseline, 144-month visit, and 8, 16, and 24 months thereafter. Knee pain outcomes were worsened knee pain, 2-point increase in WOMIC pain, and incident frequent knee pain, answering yes to the frequent knee pain question among those without frequent knee pain at baseline. Leg-specific analyzes tested hip abductor strength as a risk factor for worsened and new frequent knee pain, adjusting for potential covariates. Additionally, we stratified by knee extensor strength, high versus low. Results Among women, compared to the highest quartile of hip abductor strength, the lowest quartile had 1.7, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 1.1 to 2.6, times the odds of worsened knee pain. Significant associations were limited to women with high knee extensor strength, odds ratio 2.0, 95% C1.1 to 3.5. We found no relation of abductor strength to worsening knee pain in men or with incident frequent knee pain in men or women. Conclusion Hip abductor weakness was associated with worsening knee pain in women with strong knee extensors, but not with incident frequent knee pain in men or women. 
Knee extensor strength may be necessary, but not sufficient, to prevent pain worsening. Efficacy and safety of sublingual cyclobenzaprine for the treatment of fibromyalgia results from a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Objective To evaluate the efficacy and safety of TNX-102-SL, a once-nightly sublingual formulation of cyclobenzaprine, in reducing pain in patients with fibromyalgia, FM. Methods Relief was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. Overall, 503 patients received TNX-102-SL 2.8 mg for 2 weeks, followed by 5.6 mg for 12 weeks, 248 patients, or matching placebo, 255 patients. The primary endpoint was changed from baseline at week 14 and the weekly average of daily pain scores. Secondary endpoints included patient global impression of change, PGIC, scores, fibromyalgia impact questionnaire revised, FIQR, scores, patient reported outcomes measurement information system, PROMISE, sleep disturbance and fatigue scores, and daily sleep quality. Safety was assessed by adverse event, A, reporting. Results. Reduction in daily pain from baseline at week 14 was significantly greater with TNX 102 SL, least squares, LS, mean change minus 1.9, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, minus 2.1, minus 1.7, versus placebo, LS mean change minus 1.5, 95% C minus 1.7, minus 1.3, P equals 0.01. TNX 102 SL was not associated with significant improvement in chick at week 14 but was associated with improvements in figure scores, promise scores, and daily sleep quality. Overall, 59.7% of patients receiving TNX-102-SL and 46.3% receiving placebo reported treatment emergent A's. The most common were oral hypoesthesia, 17.3% with TNX-102-SL versus 0.4% with placebo, oral paresthesia, 5.6% versus 0.4%, respectively, and product taste abnormal, 4.4% versus 0.4%, respectively. Conclusion. In this phase 3, randomized, controlled trial of patients with FM, treatment with TNX-102-SL was associated with significant reductions in daily pain and was safe and well tolerated. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. A randomized, double-blind, SHAM-controlled, clinical trial of auricular vagus nerve stimulation for the treatment of active rheumatoid arthritis. Objective. Preliminary evidence suggests that vagus nerve stimulation, VNS, may have some benefit in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, RA. However, prior studies have been small and or uncontrolled. This study aimed to address that gap. Methods. This randomized, double-blind, SHAM-controlled trial enrolled patients aged 18 to 75 years with active RA who had failed conventional synthetic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, MARDs, and were naive to biologic and or targeted synthetic MARDs. All patients received an auricular vagus nerve stimulator and were randomized one-to-one to active stimulation or SHAM. 
The primary endpoint was the proportion of patients achieving 20% improvement in American College of Rheumatology criteria, ACR20, at week 12. Secondary endpoints included mean changes in disease activity score of 28 joints with C-reactive protein, DOS28CRP, and Health Assessment Questionnaire Disability Index, HOC-DI. Results A total of 113 patients, mean age 54 years, 82% female, enrolled, and 101 patients, 89.4%, completed week 12. ACR20 response at week 12 was 25.0% for active stimulation versus 26.9% for sham, difference versus sham, minus 1.9, 95% C, minus 18.8, 14.9, P equals 0.823. The least square mean plus or minus SE change in DOS28 CRP was minus 0.95 plus or minus 0.16 for active stimulation and minus 0.66 plus or minus 0.16 for sham, P equals 0.201. In Hoc DI it was minus 0.19 plus or minus 0.06 for active stimulation and minus 0.02 plus or minus 0.06 for sham, P equals 0.044. Adverse events occurred in 17 patients, 15%, all were mild or moderate. Conclusion Auricular VNS did not meaningfully improve RA disease activity. If VNS with other modalities is pursued in the future for the treatment of RA, larger, controlled studies will be needed to understand its utility. Next article from Circulation Outpatient Worsening Among Patients with Mildly Reduced and Preserved Ejection Fraction Heart Failure in the Deliver Trial. Background Hospitalization is recognized as a sentinel event in the disease trajectory of patients with heart failure, HF, but not all patients experiencing clinical decompensation are ultimately hospitalized. Outpatient intensification of diuretics is common in response to symptoms of worsening HF, yet its prognostic and clinical relevance, specifically for patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, is uncertain. Methods in this pre-specified analysis of the DELIVER trial, dapagliflozin evaluation to improve the lives of patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, we assessed the association between various non-fatal worsening HF events, those requiring hospitalization, urgent outpatient visits requiring intravenous HF therapies, and outpatient oral diuretic intensification, and rates of subsequent mortality. We further examined the treatment effect of dapagliflozin on an expanded composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, HF hospitalization, urgent HF visit, or outpatient oral diuretic intensification. Results In DELIVER, 4,532, 72%, patients experienced no worsening HF event, whereas 789, 13%, had outpatient oral diuretic intensification, 86, 1%, required an urgent HF visit, 585, 9%, had an HF hospitalization, and 271, 4%, died of cardiovascular causes as a first presentation. Patients with a first presentation manifesting as outpatient oral diuretic intensification experienced rates of subsequent mortality that were higher, 10, 8 to 12, per 100 patient years, than those without a worsening HF event, 4, 3 to 4, per 100 patient years, 
but similar to rates of subsequent death after an urgent HF visit, 10, 6 to 18, per 100 patient years. Patients with an HF hospitalization as a first presentation of worsening HF had the highest rates of subsequent death, 35, 31 to 40, per 100 patient years. The addition of outpatient diuretic intensification to the adjudicated deliver primary endpoint, cardiovascular death, HF hospitalization or urgent HF visit, increased the overall number of patients experiencing an event from 1122 to 1731, a 54% increase. Dapagliflozin reduced the need for outpatient diuretic intensification alone, hazard ratio, 0.72, 95% C, 0.64 to 0.82, and when analyzed as a part of an expanded composite and point of worsening HF or cardiovascular death, hazard ratio, 0.76, 95% C, 0.69 to 0.84. Conclusions In patients with HF with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, worsening HF requiring oral diuretic intensification in ambulatory care was frequent, adversely prognostic, and significantly reduced by dapagliflozin. Next article from American College of Cardiology Stroke and Bleeding Risk in AF with CHOT2DS2 VOSC score of 1 Study questions What is the next clinical benefit of oral anticoagulation, OAC, therapy for patients with atrial fibrillation, AF, and an intermediate risk of stroke? Methods The AF in Norway, AFMR Study is a cohort study of patients in Norway with linkage between a patient registry, prescription database, and cause of death registry. All adult patients with a diagnosis of AF and a non-sex characteristic CHOT2DS2 VOSC score of 1 between 2011 and 2018 were included in the analysis. Patients with mitral stenosis or mechanical heart valve as well as those with prevalent use of OAC at baseline were excluded. Patients were followed until the first incidence of ischemic stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, increase in CHOT2DS2 VOSC score, or study period ended. Other outcomes assessed include major bleeding, defined as a hospitalization or death from intracranial bleed, gastrointestinal bleed, or fatal bleed from another site. One-year incidence rates were calculated and Cox regression models compared outcomes for patients who did and did not receive OAC therapy. Results a total of 34,460 patients with AF and non-sex CHOT2DS2 VOSC score of 1 were identified. The incidence rate of ischemic stroke was 0.51 per 100 patient years among OAC users and 1.05 per 100 patient years among non-users, adjusted hazard ratio, R, 0.47, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.37 to 0.59. The incidence rate of intracranial hemorrhage was 0.28 per 100 patient years among OAC users and 0.19 per 100 patient years among non-users, R, 1.23, 95% C, 0.88 to 1.72. Major bleeding was more common among OAC users than non-users, R, 1.37, 95% C, 1.16 to 1.63. The overall combined outcome of ischemic stroke, Major bleeding and mortality was lower among OAC users than non-users, R, 0.57, 95% C, 0.51 to 0.63. Conclusions 
The authors conclude that OAC use is associated with overall favorable clinical outcomes in patients with AF at intermediate risk of stroke. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Comparison of Intravascular Imaging, Functional or Angiographically Guided Coronary Intervention Background In patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, it remains unclear whether intravascular imaging guidance or functional guidance is the best strategy to optimize outcomes and if the results are different in patients with versus without acute coronary syndromes, ACS. Objectives The purpose of this study was to evaluate clinical outcomes with imaging-guided PCI or functionally-guided PCI when compared with conventional angiography-guided PCI. Methods We searched PubMed and Embase for randomized controlled trials investigating outcomes with intravascular imaging-guided, functionally-guided, or angiography-guided PCI. The primary outcome from this network meta-analysis was trial-defined major adverse cardiovascular event, MACE, a composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, ME, and target lesion revascularization, TLR. PCI strategies were ranked, best to worst, using P-scores. Results Our search identified 32 eligible randomized controlled trials and included a total of 22,684 patients. Compared with angiography-guided PCI, Intravascular imaging-guided PCI was associated with reduced risk of MACE, relative risk, RR, 0.72, 95% C, 0.62-0.82, cardiovascular death, RR, 0.56, 95% C, 0.42-0.75, ME, RR, 0.81, 95% C, 0.66-0.99, stent thrombosis, RR, 0.48, 95% C, 0.31 to 0.73, and TLR, RR, 0.75, 95% C, 0.57 to 0.99. Similarly, when compared with angiography-guided PCI, functionally-guided PCI was associated with reduced risk of MACE and ME. Intravascular imaging-guided PCI ranked first for the outcomes of MACE, cardiovascular death, stent thrombosis, and TLR. The results were consistent in the ACS and non-ACS cohorts. Conclusions Angiography-guided PCI had consistently worse outcomes compared with intravascular imaging-guided and functionally-guided PCI. Intravascular imaging-guided PCI was the best strategy to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. DI slash clay, a measure consisting of insulin sensitivity, secretion, and clearance, captures diabetic states. Objective. To understand the relation between blood glucose and insulin sensitivity, secretion, and clearance. Methods. We performed a hyperglycemic clamp, a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp, and an oral glucose tolerance test. OGTT, in 47, 16, and 49 subjects with normal glucose tolerance, NGT, impaired glucose tolerance, IGT, and type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM, respectively. 
Mathematical analyses were retrospectively performed on this dataset. Results The disposition index, DI, defined as the product of insulin sensitivity and secretion, showed a weak correlation with blood glucose levels, especially in IGT, R equals 0.04, 95% C, minus 0.63 to 0.44. However, an equation relating DI, insulin clearance, and blood glucose levels was well conserved regardless of the extent of glucose intolerance. As a measure of the effect of insulin, we developed an index, designated disposition index slash clearance, DI slash clay, that is based on this equation and corresponds to DI divided by the square of insulin clearance. DI slash clay was not impaired in IGT compared with NGT, possibly as a result of a decrease in insulin clearance in response to a reduction in DI, whereas it was impaired in T2DM relative to IGT. Moreover, DI slash clay estimated from a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp, OGTT, or a fasting blood test were significantly correlated with that estimated from two clamp tests, R equals 0.52, 95% C, 0.37 to 0.64, R equals 0.43, 95% C, 0.24 to 0.58, R equals 0.54, 95% C, 0.38 to 0.68, respectively. Conclusion DI slash clay can serve as a new indicator for the trajectory of changes in glucose tolerance. Next article from Neurology Short-term exposure to air pollution and ischemic stroke A systematic review and meta-analysis Background and objectives Approximately 5 million fatalities occur annually due to stroke, along with its substantial effects on patient well-being and functional impairment. Research has established a connection between extended exposure to air pollutants and ischemic stroke. However, the link between short-term exposure to air pollutants and stroke remains less definitive. Methods A comprehensive search was conducted on Medline, Scopus, the Cochrane Central Register of Controlled Trials, Central, and Web of Sciences databases up until February 2023, without any language restrictions. The inclusion criteria encompassed observational or interventional studies that examined the correlation between short-term exposure to air pollutants, carbon monoxide, CO, sulfur dioxide, SO2, nitrogen dioxide, NO2, ozone, O3, and particulate matter with diameters of less than 1 micrometer, less than 2.5 micrometers, or less than 10 micrometers, PM1, PM2.5, and PM10, with the incidence and mortality of ischemic stroke. Short-term exposure was defined as exposure occurring within five days of the onset of stroke. Results A total of 18,035,408 cases of ischemic stroke were included in the analysis, derived from 110 observational studies. Asia accounted for most included studies, representing 58.8% of the total. By contrast, Europe and the Americas contributed 24.6% and 16.7% of the studies, respectively. Notably, none of the included studies were conducted in Africa. Stroke incidence was significantly associated with an increase in the concentration of NO2 RR equals 1.28, 95% C 1.21 to 1.36, O3, RR equals 1.05, 95% C 1.03 to 1.07, CO, RR equals 
95% C1.21 to 1.32, SO2, RR equals 1.15, 95% C1.11 to 1.19, PM1, RR equals 1.09, 95% C1.06 to 1.12, PM2.5, RR equals 1.15, 95% C1.13 to 1.17, and PM10, RR equals 1.14. 95% C1.12 to 1.16. Moreover, an increase in the concentration of NO2 RR equals 1.33, 95% C1.07 to 1.65, SO2 RR equals 1.60, 95% C1.05 to 2.44, PM2.5 RR equals 1.09, 95% C1.04 to 1.15, and PM10. RR equals 1.02, 95% C1.00 to 1.04, was associated with an increase in stroke mortality. Discussion There is a strong and significant correlation between gaseous and particulate air pollutants and the occurrence and mortality rates of stroke. This close temporal association underscores the importance of implementing global initiatives to develop policies aimed at reducing air pollution. By doing so, alleviate the burden of ischemic stroke and its consequences. Next article from CHEST. Liberation from venovenous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for respiratory failure. Background. Safe and timely liberation from venovenous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO, would be expected to reduce the duration of ECMO, the risk of complications, and costs. However, how to liberate patients from venovenous ECMO effectively remains understudied. Research question. What is the current state of the evidence on liberation from venovenous ECMO? Study design and methods. We systematically searched for relevant publications on liberation from venovenous ECMO in Medline and Embase. Citations were included if the manuscripts provided any of the following, criteria for readiness for liberation, a liberation protocol, or a definition of successful decannulation or decannulation failure. We included randomized trials, observational trials, narrative reviews, guidelines, editorials, and commentaries. We excluded single-case reports and citations where the full text was unavailable. Results We screened 1,467 citations to identify 39 key publications on liberation from venovenous ECMO. We then summarized the data into five main topics, current strategies used for liberation, criteria used to define readiness for liberation, conducting liberation trials, criteria used to proceed with decannulation, and parameters used to predict decannulation outcomes. Interpretation Practices on liberation from venovenous ECMO are heterogeneous and are influenced strongly by clinician preference. Additional research on liberation thresholds is needed to define optimal liberation strategies and to close existing knowledge gaps in essential topics on liberation from venovenous ECMO. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Indoor pollution and lung function decline in current and former smokers, spiromics air. Rationale, indoor pollutants have been associated with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease morbidity, 
but it is unclear whether they contribute to disease progression. Objectives, we aim to determine whether indoor particulate matter, PM, and nitrogen dioxide, NO2, are associated with lung function decline among current and former smokers. Methods, of the 2,382 subjects with a history of smoking in spiromics air, 1,208 participants had complete information to estimate indoor PM and NO2, using individual-based prediction models, in relation to measured spirometry at two or more clinic visits. We used a three-way interaction model between time, pollutant, and smoking status and assessed the indoor pollutant-associated difference in FEV1 decline separately using a generalized linear mixed model. Measurements and main results, participants had an average rate of FEV1 decline of 60.3 ml slash year for those currently smoking compared with 35.2 ml slash year for those who quit. The association of indoor PM with FEV1 decline differed by smoking status. Among former smokers, every 10 microgram slash M3 increase in estimated indoor PM was associated with an additional 10 ml slash year decline in FEV1, P equals 0.044. Among current smokers, FEV1 decline did not differ by indoor PM. The results of indoor NO2 suggest trends similar to those for PM 2.5 M aerodynamic diameter. Conclusions, former smokers with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who live in homes with high estimated PM have accelerated lung function loss, and those in homes with low PM have lung function loss similar to normal aging. In-home PM exposure may contribute to variability in lung function decline in people who quit smoking and may be a modifiable exposure. Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Proton pump inhibitor use and complications of cirrhosis are linked with distinct gut microbial bacteriophage and eukaryotic viral-like particle signatures in cirrhosis. Introduction Proton pump inhibitors, PPI, modulate the progression of cirrhosis to hepatic encephalopathy, HE, and can affect the bacterial microbiome. However, the impact of PPI on the virome and cirrhosis using viral-like particle analysis, VLP, is unclear. Method We determined the VLP in the stool microbiome and cirrhosis cross-sectionally, ascites, he, PPI use analyzed, who were followed up for six-month hospitalizations and through two clinical trials of PPI withdrawal and initiation. Results In a cross-sectional study, PPI users had greater ascites prevalence and six-month hospitalizations, but VLP-alpha diversity was similar. Among phages, PPI users had lower autograph viridae and higher streptococcus phages and horelviridae than non-users, whereas opposite trends were seen in ascites and he. Trends of eukaryotic viruses, higher adenoviridae and lower vergaviridae slash smacoviridae, were similar for PPI, he, and ascites. 21% were hospitalized mostly due to HE. Alpha diversity was similar in the hospitalized-slash-non-hospitalized-slash-not groups. Higher gokushovirony and lower CRS phages were related to hospitalizations such as HE-related cross-sectional VLP changes. As part of the clinical trial, PPIs were added and withdrawn in two different decompensated groups over 14 days. No changes in alpha diversity were observed. Withdrawal reduced CRS phages, and initiation reduced gokushovirony and bacteroides phages. Conclusion In cirrhosis, PPI use has a gut microbial VLP phage signature that is different from that in he and ascites, 
NVLP changes are linked with hospitalizations over six months, independent of clinical biomarkers. Eukaryotic virus patterns were consistent across PPI use, he, and ascites, indicating a relationship with the progression of cirrhosis. PPIs alone showed modest VLP changes with withdrawal or initiation. Distinct phage and eukaryotic viral patterns are associated with the use of PPIs in cirrhosis. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Health-Related Quality of Life in Patients with Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, a Prospective Multicenter UK Study. Background and Aims. It is unclear whether health-related quality of life, her call, is impaired in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, without advanced fibrosis and how this compares with the general population. We aim to assess her call in patients with NAFLD in comparison to the general population and any associations of fibrosis severity and metabolic comorbidities with impairments in her call. Methods we prospectively enrolled 513 consecutive patients with NAFLD who completed the Eurocall 5-Dimensional Questionnaire, EQ5D, and Chronic Liver Disease Questionnaires, CLDQ. Demographic and Clinical Information, Liver Biopsy Results, and or Liver Stiffness, LS, by Transient Elastography were recorded. A general population sub-cohort of the Health Survey for England 2018 was used as a comparator, and equals 5,483, and a 1 to 1 propensity score, PS, matching was performed, according to age, sex, body mass index, and type 2 diabetes mellitus, T2DM. Results EQ5D5 liters utility was significantly lower in 466 PS match patients with NAFLD compared with PS match controls, 0.77 plus or minus 0.27 versus 0.84 plus or minus 0.19. P less than 0.001, even in those without advanced fibrosis, F less than or equal to 2 or LS less than 8 kPa, 0.80 plus or minus 0.24 versus 0.84 plus or minus 0.19, P equals 0.024. Her call measures, EQ5D5 liters, EQVAS, CLDQ, did not differ between patients with NAFLD with and without advanced fibrosis. LS was independently associated with lower EQ5D5 liters in all patients with NAFLD but not in those without advanced fibrosis. In the latter, lower EQ5D5 liters was associated with female sex, T2DM, and depression. Conclusions Patients with NAFLD, even those without advanced fibrosis, have worse recall compared with the general population. In patients with NAFLD without advanced fibrosis, her call is independently associated with non-liver comorbidities but not LS. Multidisciplinary management is therefore required in NAFLD, irrespective of fibrosis severity. Real-world experience with tofacitinib dose to escalation in patients with moderate and severe ulcerative colitis. Background and aims. Tofacitinib is associated with sustained steroid-free remission in patients with ulcerative colitis, UC, with the lowest effective dose recommended for maintenance therapy. However, there are limited real-world data to guide decisions on the optimal maintenance regimen. We aim to evaluate predictors and outcomes of disease activity after tofacitinib dose de-escalation in this population. 
Methods Included were adults with moderate severe UC treated with tofacitinib between June 2012 and January 2022. The primary outcome was evidence of UC disease activity-related events, hospitalization-slash-surgery, corticosteroid initiation, tofacitinib dose increase, or therapy switch. Results Among 162 patients, 52% continued 10 mg twice daily while 48% underwent dose de-escalation to 5 mg twice daily. Cumulative incidence rates of UC events at 12 months were similar in patients with and without dose de-escalation, 56% versus 58%, p equals 0.81. In univariable Cox regression among patients with dose de-escalation, an induction course with 10 mg twice daily for more than 16 weeks was protective of UC events, Hazard ratio, HR, 0.37, 95% C, 0.16 to 0.85, while ongoing severe disease, Mayo 3, was associated with UC events, HR, 6.41, 95% 95% C, 2.23 to 18.44, which remained significant after adjusting for age, sex, duration of induction course, and corticosteroid use at dose de escalation, HR, 6.05, 95% C, 2.00 to 18.35. 29% of patients with UC events had their dose re-escalated to 10 mg twice daily, with only 63% able to recapture clinical response at 12 months. Conclusions In this real-world cohort, we observed a 56% cumulative incidence of UC events at 12 months in patients with tofacitinib dose de-escalation. Observed factors associated with UC events after dose de-escalation included induction course for fewer than 16 weeks and active endoscopic disease 6 months after initiation. Real-world experience with tofacitinib dose de-escalation in patients with moderate and severe ulcerative colitis. Background and aims. Tofacitinib is associated with sustained steroid-free remission in patients with ulcerative colitis, UC, with the lowest effective dose recommended for maintenance therapy. However, there are limited real-world data to guide decisions on the optimal maintenance regimen. We aim to evaluate predictors and outcomes of disease activity after tofacitinib dose de-escalation in this population. Methods Included were adults with moderate severe UC treated with tofacitinib between June 2012 and January 2022. The primary outcome was evidence of UC disease activity-related events, hospitalization-slash-surgery, corticosteroid initiation, tofacitinib dose increase, or therapy switch. Results Among 162 patients, 52% continued 10 mg twice daily while 48% underwent dose de-escalation to 5 mg twice daily. Cumulative incidence rates of UC events at 12 months were similar in patients with and without dose de-escalation, 56% versus 58%, p equals 0.81. In univariable Cox regression among patients with dose de-escalation, an induction course with 10 mg twice daily for more than 16 weeks was protective of UC events, Hazard ratio, HR, 0.37, 95% C, 0.16 to 0.85, while ongoing severe disease, Mayo 3, was associated with UC events, HR, 6.41, 95% 95% C, 2.23 to 18.44,
which remain significant after adjusting for age, sex, duration of induction course, and corticosteroid use at dose de escalation, HR, 6.05, 95% C, 2.00 to 18.35. 29% of patients with UC events had their dose re-escalated to 10 mg twice daily, with only 63% able to recapture clinical response at 12 months. Conclusions In this real-world cohort, we observed a 56% cumulative incidence of UC events at 12 months in patients with tofacitinib dose de-escalation. Observed factors associated with UC events after dose de-escalation included induction course for fewer than 16 weeks and active endoscopic disease 6 months after initiation. Next article is from Clinical Journal of Kidney International. Changes in Bone Quality After Treatment with Etelcalcetide Introduction Secondary hyperparathyroidism is associated with osteoporosis and fractures. Etelcalcetide is an intravenous calcimimetic for the control of hyperparathyroidism in patients on hemodialysis. Effects of etelcalcetide on the skeleton are unknown. Methods in a single arm, open label, 36 week prospective trial, we hypothesize that etelcalcetide improves bone quality and strength without damaging bone tissue quality. Participants were 18 years or older, on hemodialysis greater than or equal to one year, without calcimimetic exposure within 12 weeks of enrollment. We measured pretreatment and post treatment aerial bone mineral density by dual energy X ray absorptiometry central skeleton trabecular microarchitecture by trabecular bone score, and peripheral skeleton volumetric bone density, geometry, microarchitecture, and estimated strength by high-resolution peripheral quantitative computed tomography. Bone tissue quality was assessed using quadruple-label bone biopsy in a subset of patients. Pair T-tests were used in our analysis. Results 22 participants were enrolled, 13 completed follow-up, mean plus or minus age 51 plus or minus 14 years, 53% male and 15% white. 5 underwent bone biopsy, mean plus or minus age 52 plus or minus 16 years and 80% female. Over 36 weeks, parathyroid hormone levels declined 67% plus or minus 9%, p less than 0.001, aerial bone mineral density at the spine, Femoral neck and total hip increased 3% plus or minus 1%, 7% plus or minus 2%, and 3% plus or minus 1%, respectively, p less than 0.05, spine trabecular bone score increased 10% plus or minus 2%, p less than 0.001, and radius stiffness and failure load trended to a 7% plus or minus 4%, p equals 0.05 and 6% plus or minus 4% increase, p equals 0.06, respectively. Bone biopsy demonstrated a decreased bone formation rate, mean difference minus 25 plus or minus 4 mu m3 slash mu m2 per year, p less than 0.01. Conclusions Treatment with etelcalcetide for 36 weeks was associated with improvements in central skeleton aerial bone mineral density and trabecular quality and lowered bone turnover without affecting bone material properties.
Comparison of short-term outcomes in kidney transplant recipients from SARS-CoV-2 infected versus non-infected deceased donors. Background. Acceptable post-transplant outcomes were reported in kidney transplant recipients from donors with coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. However, there are no comparative studies with well-matched controls. Methods. This multicenter, prospective observational study, which included three transplant centers in the United States, enrolled 61 kidney recipients from severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2 infected deceased donors. Using optimal matching methods, we matched every recipient to three comparators receiving kidneys from SARS-CoV-2 negative deceased donors with otherwise highly similar characteristics in the same transplant centers to compare six-month EFER. Results Among recipients of SARS-CoV-2 infected donor kidneys, one recipient died with a functional graft within six months. Mean six-month EFER was not significantly different between SARS-CoV-2 infected and non-infected donor groups, 55 plus or minus 21 and 57 plus or minus 25 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters, respectively, p equals 0.61. Six-month EFER in recipients from SARS-CoV-2 infected donors who died of reasons other than COVID-19 was not significantly different from those from SARS-CoV-2 negative donors, 58 plus or minus 22 and 56 plus or minus 25 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters, respectively p equals 0.51. However, recipients from donors who died of COVID-19 had significantly lower six-month eat for than those from SARS-CoV-2 negative donors, 46 plus or minus 17 and 58 plus or minus 27 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters, respectively, p equals 0.03. No donor to recipient SARS-CoV-2 transmission was observed. Conclusions Six-month EGFR was not significantly different between recipients of kidneys from SARS-CoV-2 infected and non-infected donors. However, those receiving kidneys from donors who died of COVID-19 had significantly lower six-month EGFR. Donor-to-recipient SARS-CoV-2 transmission was not observed. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Prospective cohort study of soluble urokinase plasminogen activation receptor and cardiovascular events in patients with CKD. Introduction. Soluble urokinase plasminogen activation receptor, SUPAR, is an immune-derived pathogenic factor for kidney and atherosclerotic disease. Whether the association between SUPAR and cardiovascular, CV, outcomes is dependent on the severity of underlying kidney disease is unclear. Methods We measured serum SUPAR levels in 4,994 participants, mean age 60 years, 60% men, 36% with diabetes mellitus, mean estimated glomerular filtration rate, E for 49 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters, SD18, of the German chronic kidney disease, GCKD, cohort and examined its association with all-cause death, CV death and major CV events, MACE, across the range of EGFR and urine albumin to creatinine ratio, UACR. Results. The median SUPAR level was 1771 pg ml in interquartile range, IQR 1447 to 2254 pg ml. SUPAR levels were positively and independently correlated with age, EGFR, Walker, and parathyroid hormone levels. 
There were 573 deaths, including 190 CV deaths, and 683 MACE events at a follow-up time of 6.5 years. In multivariable analyses, SUPAR levels, log 2, were associated with all-cause death, hazard ratio, HR, 1.36, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.21 to 1.53, CV death, HR 1.27, 95% C 1.03 to 1.57, and MACE, HR 1.13, 95% C 1.00 to 1.28, and were not found to differ according to diabetes mellitus status, baseline equer, walker, or parathyroid hormone levels. In mediation analysis, SUPAR's direct effect on all-cause death, CV death, and MACE accounted for 77%, 67%, and 60% of the total effect, respectively, whereas the effect mediated through EFER accounted for 23%, 34%, and 40%, respectively. Conclusion In a large cohort of individuals with chronic kidney disease, CKD, SUPAR levels were associated with mortality and CV outcomes independently of indices of kidney function, consistent with its independent role in the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week.